The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthed.com.au. Hello and welcome to Health Ads Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Thursday, the 1st of September. Here, what's new in the ever-changing COVID landscape from one of Australia's leading experts? Make sure you are up to date on the latest information on the COVID pandemic. Associate Professor Senjaya Senanaika will present the latest developments in terms of the illness and its prevention, including information on boosters and what is new in terms of COVID-19 treatment. So I'd like to uh, thank you for inviting me to speak for this HealthEd COVID lecture. My name is Sanjaya Senanayaka. I'm an infectious diseases physician in Canberra and an associate professor of medicine at the ANU. In this brief update, I'll be talking about a couple of things. So first of all, the second booster. Does it make a difference or not? What does the data say? Where is Australia at currently with regard to COVID? And what does the new Omicron-specific booster mean for COVID? And then looking at the vaccine landscape in general before talking about some other viruses that are around. So in terms of COVID-19, where are we right now in the world? We reached the not so more infamous milestone of having a million deaths occur so far in 2022. Now that's not necessarily because the current substrains of the virus are more lethal. In fact, it's probably the opposite, but it's just there's such a high burden of disease due to, these, uh, due to Omicron and her subvariants. But overall, globally, we are seeing a drop in reported cases. If you look at the picture in Australia, as you know, we've had a pretty awful winter both in terms of COVID and flu, which has been co-circulating. We've had that resurgence of flu after having had almost nothing last year and very little the year before. And that's led to a number of uh, case notifications for COVID nationally, as well as hospitalizations and deaths. And if you look at all three markers, uh, you can see that thankfully, as we head towards the end of winter and into spring and the warmer weather, those numbers are starting to drop. Now that doesn't mean that we still don't have a lot of COVID patients in hospital, but things are looking more optimistic than they were a month ago. 
So we're over that peak for now. If you look at vaccination globally, more than 12 and a half billion shots have been given, which actually is, is very impressive since we started vaccinating uh, sort of around one and a half years ago. But of course, as you can see from that map where the lighter colors represent less vaccination per population group, you can see that the poorer countries have received less vaccinations than the wealthier countries. So there certainly is, of those 12.5 billion shots, that's, there's definitely a skewing towards richer nations. In Australia, we've done pretty well. We've had at least more than 80% of the population receive two doses of vaccine, but we did see a slacking off when it came to the first booster. With regard to the second booster, we are, we've seen almost 5 million people get doses, but certainly you get a sense that there is vaccine and COVID fatigue with regard to the population. So the second booster or the winter booster came about because of fears of COVID getting worse in winter, of flu circulating as well, and the impact that would have on the healthcare system. So the second boosters being talked about, not just in Australia, but in around, uh, or oh, in many countries around the world, where around a dozen countries have offered a second booster. And there are a number of articles which have looked into it and trying to work out how well these second boosters worked. And I think with time, we will have more data and we'll be able to work out how effective a second booster has been in the context of Omicron and her subvariants. So we have an Israeli study first to look at, uh, which was in the New England Journal of Medicine. It involved healthcare workers during a time that Omicron dominated Israel. So it was definitely during Omicron. So these were people, healthcare workers who'd already had a third dose and they were offered a fourth dose and it could be Pfizer or Moderna and about the same number received each. The numbers weren't huge, only 154 for Pfizer and 120 for Moderna and they had two age match controls for each participant. And there was good surveillance in the sense there was weekly PCR testing irrespective of whether you had symptoms or you were a contact, etc. The average age, uh, still relatively young, 55, 59, and you had some extremes. You had 85-year-old healthcare workers and 87-year-old healthcare workers in the Pfizer and Moderna group. So you had some older people working, but the median age or the average age was, was uh, much lower. And they found that the fourth dose vaccine efficacy against infection wasn't really great for either vaccine, 11% for Moderna, 30% for Pfizer. Uh, but from memory, the Moderna vaccine was given a week later than the Pfizer. So there could have been some issues around uh, peak activity because of that. Again, symptomatic infection, not surprisingly, the figures were a bit better, 43% for Pfizer and 31% uh, for Moderna. And there was neutralizing 
IgG antibodies and IgG antibodies against the receptor binding domain that were at slightly higher peak than after the third dose. So certainly not dramatically better, but maybe slightly, slightly better. So there, overall, there was some benefit, some marginal benefit in preventing infection, but it wasn't great. And here are some tables and graphs representing those antibody uh, levels. Then another study came out in The Lancet, which looked at the, it was a sub-study of the COV-BOOST trial. So they're doing a lot of work on the effectiveness of a booster. And it's been a, you know, it's a very good blinded RCT. And you can go to the website and, and read all about the work that they are doing. So in this sub-study of the COV-BOOST trial that was published in The Lancet Journal, there are 166 participants. Now, 88 had two AstraZenecas and a Pfizer booster, and 78 had two Pfizers as their prime boost, and then a third Pfizer as their main booster. The median age, fairly similar, 67 for those who'd had the AstraZeneca uh, AstraZeneca was uh, so 67 and 73 for those who'd only had Pfizer and the median interval between the third and fourth doses was about seven months 208 days and there's a similar age range uh, 52 to 77 for Pfizer 52 to 80 uh, for the Moderna and around 50% of participants were over 70, so, which is good. Even though the numbers were small, it meant that you had some older people and you could monitor their responses. And they either received 30 micrograms of Pfizer or 50 micrograms of Moderna as their fourth dose. And for both vaccines, they found that the anti-IgG antibodies to the spike protein at day 14 after the fourth dose, when you'd start to expect to see a, a good response, uh, was, was very good compared to 28 days after the third dose for both vaccines. They even looked at the T-cell responses after the third dose. And if you recall, we think that the T-cell responses most likely reflect our response to severe infection or protect us against severe infection. So that's why we try and look at the T-cell responses. And it was certainly boosted after the third dose. But when they looked at that data closely, it could have been that we were seeing, because it had been about seven months after people had had their third dose, that we might have been seeing a waning of immunity from that third dose. So there was a low baseline when the fourth dose was given. Therefore, you did naturally see a rise as well. And of course, there were a subgroup of people who already had a high baseline of anti-IgG antibodies to the spike protein and good T-cell responses before they got the fourth dose. So and they didn't get a massive rise in those factors after they got their fourth dose, suggesting there might be a ceiling effect. So really, giving a fourth dose isn't going to give you a lot more immunity than you had with your third dose, but it might get you up to those levels that you had with the third dose. 
Another article from Israel, because as you'd all know, Israel seems to be leading the way in terms of giving an extra dose of vaccine. So they've published a lot of data as we've gone through the pandemic on that new dose of vaccine. And the, the studies have generally been pretty good. So they compared uh, health, they looked at healthcare workers again, comparing four doses to three doses. And there are a lot of healthcare workers, almost 30,000 who'd received three doses. And it was at least three months between the third and fourth dose. And that fourth dose was given in January 2022. Now, of those 30,000 healthcare workers in the uh, study, only about a fifth of them, 5,331, took the fourth dose. So the uptake wasn't particularly good. And unlike the previous study we talked about, there was no regular weekly PCR testing. You're only tested if you were sick or if you were contact, uh, contact of a case. So in other words, it is possible that uh, asymptomatic or uh, minimally symptomatic people may have been missed. But what they found that they found that breakthrough infection in the four dose group was less than in the three dose group. So that's worth remembering when we try and sum up the benefits of the fourth dose of vaccine. Then the question arose, well, we're talking about antibody levels and T cell responses, how they improve and symptomatic infection. But what about severe illness? What about hospitalization? What about death? Do the, does the fourth dose make an impact there? So there's an article in JAMA looking at this, again from Israel, looking at residents in long-term care facilities there uh, from January to March of this year. So again, when Omicron was around. And uh, over 40,000 residents, and of course the median age was 80, as you'd expect, an older population. And 24,000 had had four doses, 19,000 had had three doses. And you can see when it came to hospitalization, severe illness and death, if you'd had four doses, there was clearly a benefit. Now the benefit, of course, not surprisingly, against infection was much less than it was against hospitalization, which was again less than against death. But this was a, a reassuring study in terms of the benefits of a fourth dose. The US CDC also presented data on a second booster and they, they also found a benefit in terms of comparing people with at least uh, a primary series. So there was definitely a benefit as you can see from these graphs in terms of risks of dying, which is again the severe outcome, one of the severe outcomes we want to talk about if you'd had two boosters versus less than that. And again, another study uh, in nature, in people, again, an older population, the population we believe are vulnerable and we know are vulnerable to severe COVID. And we saw that the cumulative risk of death, the hazard ratios of death were reduced if you'd had a second booster 
versus a first booster. And there was a study in Ontario, which was published in the BMJ, a bit like the Israeli study looking at older populations in long-term care facilities. But they found, comparing it to four doses versus three doses, the marginal effectiveness was there in terms of the fourth dose providing a benefit over a third dose when it came to infection, symptomatic infection and severe infections. And comparing it, the fourth dose to the unvaccinated person and looking at vaccine efficacy or vaccine effectiveness there, it increased with each dose. And I should be using the term vaccine effectiveness if we're talking about real life evaluation of the vaccines versus a clinical trial where it's vaccine efficacy. So certainly we were seeing the VE compared to unvaccinated people increased with each dose. And 49% against infection, 69% against symptomatic infection, 86% versus severe infection. And we talked about this study before in another slide in terms of the benefits of using it using a fourth dose in certain populations. And again, the final point, which is highlighted in a bold font, shows that if you're a healthcare worker and you had four doses versus three, you were less likely to get breakthrough COVID. So what does this, what does this all mean? The World Health Organization had a look into it as well. And looking at all these studies, what it seems to suggest is that a first booster protects against severe disease with Omicron. So that's just one booster that many, many of us have had. So that protects against severe disease with Omicron and that protection will continue. But in older people, the vulnerable people, if you give a second booster, that does improve those severe outcomes in that particular population. So that is also useful to know. We talked about the earlier study where a fourth dose certainly improves the T-cell responses and peak IgG responses, but that could be because the benefits from the third dose had waned and we weren't really seeing much of a peak beyond what the third dose offered. And that's what we call the, the ceiling effect. And then, of course, the greatest uncertainty has been in younger, healthy people. So is a fourth dose really offering much during uh, this outbreak with Omicron and her subvariants? And we certainly, against severe disease, we, don't, we can't answer that. In certain subgroups, such as healthcare workers, such as us, where we know there have been real problems with staffings, placing a huge... Uh, burden on the, the hospital system during winter, in that setting, a fourth dose can be useful by reducing breakthrough infections, although it may not have any impact on severe outcome. And of course, because all this data is, is new, it's, it's real life data, real time data, we don't know how long these benefits are going to last for. So the, the other big news in the last couple of weeks has been the Omicron-specific booster. So the MHRA, which is the medicines regulator in the UK, uh, has approved the use of the COVID-19 booster. And the TGA as well has 
granted provisional determination for Moderna uh, for the bivalent Omicron booster. What that means is Moderna can apply and get provisional approval. Moderna's yet to do that as far as I'm aware, but the TGA is happy for them to do so. So what does this all mean? So there's a phase two, three trial about this, looking at this bivalent vaccine. Now it's got the ancestral Wuhan strain in it, in half of the vaccine, 25 micrograms. The other 25 micrograms is Omicron, but it's not BA4, BA5. And as you know, BA5 is the subvariant dominating Australia at the moment. It's uh, BA1, which is the variant that troubled us or subvariant that troubled us at the end of last year and the start of, of this year. And they compared that bivalent vaccine against the sort of standard Moderna 50 microgram booster. And of course, all participants had already received three doses of Moderna. So this was a, a fourth dose for them. The numbers again were fairly similar. 437 people received the bivalent vaccine, 377 received the standard vaccine. The median age was 57, a uh, reasonable spread of uh, ages, 20 to around 90 or over. And what they found was this. If you look at the right-hand side of the graph, if you look at prior infection, people who were vaccinated but had prior infection. That probably reflects Australia today, where at least 50% of the population, probably 60 or more in truth, have been infected in the last eight months or so with COVID and have also been vaccinated. If you look at that, the top graph shows that against the ancestral Wuhan virus, both vaccines, the standard Moderna and the bivalent one with the Omicron component in it, you get uh, a good antibody response. Not surprisingly, if you look below against Omicron itself, BA1, you get a better response with the bivalent vaccine that contains an Omicron component. So that's what we'd expect and that's all very good. Now, how did it perform against BA4 and BA5? Remembering that BA5 is a subvariant that is in Australia. The reality was you did see a response with the bivalent vaccine containing Omicron, but the rise in antibodies was nowhere as good, as spectacular as we can see on that bottom graph there. So in other words, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Robert Boy, talks about being two steps ahead and then going three steps backwards when you look at these data. And that is going to be the challenge for us because we don't know what subvariant or variant is around the corner. So the US, in fact, has not embraced this new Moderna booster in the same way that the UK has and uh, the TGA has. So the, the US have said, we want to wait till there is a BA4, BA5 specific booster before we start vaccinating 
our population. And they, they're quite ambitious about this, and they've said by our fall, so their autumn, which isn't too far away at all, they want to start vaccinating their population with a BA4-5 vaccine. And certainly Moderna is working on it, but I don't know if that data will be available, if it will be ready to use by that stage. Uh, but certainly from an Australian point of view, uh, we shouldn't have all our eggs in one basket, and I certainly think it is reasonable for uh, the TGA to grant provisional determination for the bivalent BA1 Omicron vaccine. But if the Omicron BA4-5 booster becomes available, we should also make sure we get a supply of that. And actually, before I start to talk about long COVID, it is worth mentioning the vaccine landscape. There are probably about a hundred and uh, over a hundred vaccines in different stages of clinical trials around the world for COVID-19. And this is a really good thing because yes, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, Moderna, they've, they've dominated the picture so far and it's been wonderful to have those vaccines around. But as we all now realize, COVID's not going anywhere. So those other companies and groups who've been developing vaccines should keep on doing it because their vaccines might end up playing a very important role in the longer term when it comes to COVID. And the holy grail for COVID is getting a universal vaccine, a vaccine against what we call the Sabe coviruses. So the beta coronaviruses, of which SARS back in 2003, MERS, COVID, and in fact, two of the coronaviruses that cause uh, the common cold in humans, it would cover potentially all of those. And people are working on this. So the Walt Walter Reed Institute, the Army Institute in the US, they are in early clinical trials with a type of vaccine I describe it almost as a soccer ball with, I think it's about 24 faces on it, which represents a different spike protein. And they're hoping that that vaccine will induce cross immunity against all these different spike proteins. So if a similar variant or subvariant appears, it will provide some protection. Uh, there's another group in North Carolina, I think it's a mRNA technology they're using, which again is covering uh, more than one spike protein. So it's sort of trying to be a, a universal, universal vaccine. So that is what we're looking for. And I think we will get there, but it certainly won't be this year. The other vaccines to think about are intranasal vaccines, because intranasal vaccines are more likely to induce local antibody, uh, antibody production, so IgA antibodies, and that mucosal, enhanced mucosal immunity might stop infection altogether. And that's called sterilizing immunity. So they're the two things to look for. There are a number of uh, groups working on intranasal vaccines. And of course, intranasal vaccines, they aren't novel uh, just for COVID. We, we've had them in the past, particularly with influenza. So lots of stuff happening in the vaccine world at the moment. So I just thought I'd briefly talk about long COVID because I think in general practice, you, you must have seen a lot of patients uh, with this issue. We've come to 
define long COVID, at least through the World Health Organization, as symptoms that are usually three months from the onset of COVID and that lasts for at least two months and cannot be explained by an alternative diagnosis. And it lists a whole lot of symptoms, so shortness of breath, fatigue, brain fog, chest pains, etc. But in terms of symptomatology, I believe one study found that over 200 symptoms have been, uh, have been associated with it. And the other thing about long COVID is the symptoms can fluctuate. So people might think, oh, I'm getting better, but then a few days later, they feel worse again. What do I tell people who come to see me with probable long COVID? I have to tell them, look, we're learning more and more about it, but we still don't have any pharmacological treatment to offer you. And in terms of trying to understand the etiology, the pathophysiology around long COVID, various studies that have come around. So a South African study, so that top left-hand corner, found that microclots, microclotting was seen in people who'd had long COVID. Now, does that mean, does that, mean that anticoagulants will work against uh, or would be useful in long COVID? Don't know the answer yet. The trials haven't been uh, done for that, as far as I'm aware. On to the right of that, we've got SARS-CoV infection and persistence throughout the human body and brain. So these were autopsies performed on people who died with COVID. And the researchers, or those people performing the autopsies, discovered that there was viable COVID virus in various parts of the body. So it's quite possible that the virus is staying in other parts of the body and generating immune, response, immune responses that might be causing some of these symptoms, that interplay between the immune system and persisting virus. On the bot uh, bottom left-hand corner, we've got Epstein-Barr reactivation. So some people who get COVID, it might reactivate EBV. As you know, EBV is a herpes virus, herpes virus and herpes viruses are latent viruses. So once you've been infected with them, they don't leave you, they stay in your body and can manifest, I guess, clinically, particularly if your immune system is down, but generally in immunocompetent people, it do, uh, they don't tend to bother you. But with COVID, there may be an association with EBV virus reactivation. Does this mean that we give antiviral agents like uh, uh, that would work against herpes viruses in people with COVID? We certainly don't know the answer to that yet. The study immediately next to that, the immunological dysfunction one, which is from uh, an Australian group as well in New South Wales. I think it's the Kirby Institute. Forgive me if I'm wrong about that. Uh, at the UNSW. They found that there were a number of immunological abnormalities such as elevated expression of different types of interferon that uh, are occurring in people with long COVID. So again, this uh, interplay between virus and immune system 
could be responsible for making people sick. Does this mean we give anti-interferon medications to people with long COVID? We don't know the answer to that yet. And more recently, Queensland researchers who I believe work a lot on chronic fatigue syndrome did find an overlap in the pathology of long COVID and chronic fatigue syndrome. And that's not surprising because if you, if you think about it, clinically, what we're seeing with long COVID is what uh, is similar in many ways to what a lot of people with chronic fatigue syndrome or ME uh, describe. And one of the etiologies of chronic fatigue syndrome, ME, has uh, are viral infections. We think of um, EBV, CMV, uh, bacterial infections like Q fever, etc., can lead to it. And I believe the Queensland researchers found that there was some issue with calcium ion channels that was common, common to both conditions. So, in, so there might actually be a benefit in learning about long COVID for people with chronic fatigue syndrome and ME in general, because there might be shared pathologies and therefore treatments in the future might be helpful. But right now, there are no treatments, but we're understanding more and more about these, uh, more and more about this condition. The rest of 2022, what do I think? Well, I, we are over the winter peak. It's, it's certainly coming down, but what does it mean for the rest of the year? We now have hybrid immunity in the sense that we've got a lot of our Australian population who's vaccinated at least with two, some with three, some with four doses. And as I said, uh, over 50% of the population who's been infected. So if BA5 continues to dominate the landscape for the moment, that may be very useful in terms of us not seeing any more big outbreaks for the rest of 2022. And the reason I'm optimistic is because BA5 is the most immune evasive and most transmissible subvariant or form of COVID that we have seen so far. So it would take something pretty impressive to displace it. But ever since this pandemic started, COVID has kept surprising us and surprising us and surprising us. And in fact, not, most of us didn't think we'd see something like Omicron so soon after the pandemic started. So the short answer is, who knows, a, a more aggressive, infectious, immune evasive variant or sub-variant of uh, Omicron may appear. We just don't know. The other issue is now we have no travel restrictions compared to early in the pandemic or international travel restrictions. So when winter hits in the Northern Hemisphere, we're expecting to see increased COVID activity, and this may lead to a new variant or sub-variant appearing. And because there are no restrictions, people traveling to the Northern Hemisphere can bring, uh, or uh, from Australia, can bring it back to Australia, or tourists from the Northern Hemisphere coming to Australia can can bring it here. So everything about the rest of 2022 is a bit uncertain. Although there are some possible causes for optimism or reasons for optimism, but it all depends on whether a new variant or sub-variant appears. Look, in terms of 
other viruses. I mean, it's been a, a crazy time for infectious diseases. I mean, COVID is enough, but of course we've got monkeypox, there's issues with polio, and there's a, a new virus that's come out of China. So I'll just briefly talk about those. You all in general practice are aware of monkeypox. Uh, in all honesty, this is an infection that a few months ago I thought I, as an infectious diseases physician and my colleagues would know about, but no one else in the medical community or the general public would ever talk about. It would never be a point of discussion. And yet here we are talking about tens of thousands of cases that have spread to around 100 countries in the world in the last few months. Uh, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. And I think if, if COVID wasn't there, I would really be sitting down just shaking my head at, at what has happened with monkeypox. Now in Australia, we're seeing local transmission of monkeypox. We had the first case in New South Wales recently and in Victoria, uh, we're also seeing the outbreak growing with local transmission. Having said that, on a somewhat optimistic note, globally in the last couple of weeks, we are seeing uh, less notifications. Now, you could argue that could be because cases are being missed and that's possible, but certainly there is a lot of awareness in the international community about monkeypox and the susceptible population. So if we are seeing a reduction in cases, it might actually be a true reduction. And this could be, of course, as the messaging goes out in Australia and other parts of the world for people in susceptible populations to be to take extra precautions and, of course, trying to get people vaccinated against uh, monkeypox, those people who are susceptible. Now, the original uh, vaccine we were using was a, a live vaccine that's not good for immunocompromised hosts, the Gineos vaccine is one that doesn't actively replicate in people who receive the vaccine. So that's safe for everyone. But getting our hands on Gineos vaccine hasn't been easy. There, I, my understanding is that there has been a small supply of a few thousand doses, but the government is expecting a far larger supply to come in in the next few months. So that will be very important. There's also an antiviral that's available. Uh, but again, the supply may be the, may be the issue there. Um, but yes, monkeypox is something that was completely unexpected. We're still learning about the epidemiology, but at least internationally, the outbreak might be slowly start, starting to subside, but it's too early, too early to say for sure. And certainly in Australia, We've got local transmission in a couple of states, so we, as a healthcare community, have to be vigilant with our patients. Polio. Polio is still endemic to Pakistan and Afghanistan, so two countries. It's been a, an infection that we've come close to eradicating. We're sort of almost there but we haven't quite gotten there yet. Smallpox is the only infection that we've actively eradicated from this world. And polio, we were almost there, but we've had some alarming reports from the UK and now the US in, in New York. 
about polio being found in wastewater. And this is a vaccine-derived polio, type 2 polio, uh, suggesting that people are shedding the virus in their stool. And if you are immunized against polio, you're fine. But if there are people who are unimmunized, it's a problem. And unfortunately, in, in New York, an immunocompetent uh, young man has developed paralytic polio. So you get an acute flaccid paralysis. So that has happened. And I understand that uh, they, he's from a population where the uptake of the vaccine hasn't been very good. So potentially there are other people at risk there. And uh, I mean, you, you look back from a few decades ago and you, we're, I'm just so thankful that we are where we are when it comes to polio. When you see all the people who are paralyzed, probably most famously uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president of the United States, the iron lungs that people used to need because of respiratory dysfunction uh, from polio. And I'm so glad we are where we are. However, we have to be vigilant about these vaccine-derived strains that could potentially cause further outbreaks around the world. And of course, as we've just discussed with COVID, because they're found in New York and the UK doesn't mean that they will stay in those areas. With overseas travel, anyone can get on a plane and travel to the other side of the earth. So we have to be vigilant in Australia. We have to make sure that everyone's vaccinations are up to date when it comes to polio. The, oh, and I should add now that individual who unfortunately had uh, developed paralytic polio. Now that happens on average in about one in a thousand, one in 2000 cases of polio. So that does suggest that potentially in that community, there could be a lot of other cases there. So it'll be a, a tough time for the public health authorities as they scramble and work hard to try and identify people who may be infected and try and make sure people are protected as much as possible through immunization. Finally, the infections keep coming. Recently, earlier this month, in the New England Journal of Medicine, a group described a new virus that has been identified in China. Thankfully, at this stage, it doesn't look like it's going to cause the next pandemic. Uh, but again, as we have seen with all these viruses like monkeypox and COVID, the ability to, to mutate and change uh, is always there. So we have to be vigilant when it comes to this virus. It's a Henipah virus. Now, Nipah and Hendra are viruses which belong to that family and they're zoonotic. So these have, this particular virus is probably associated with a shrew. There may be a bat involved, as it has been with Nipah and Hendra, but certainly the shrew seems to be involved. It's been found in about 30 people uh, who predominantly work on farms in China. It has caused a mild flu-like illness, so as far as I'm aware, no serious outcomes. And at this stage, thankfully, there doesn't seem to be person-to-person -person transmission. But as I said, the more opportunities these viruses have to infect people, the more opportunities they have 
to mutate and learn to become more efficient at causing infection in us. So really it's uh, a crazy time for infectious diseases and I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of this year we're hearing about other emerging infections and they're most likely going to come from the animal world as human and animal habitats impinge more and more on each other. And COVID technically isn't a zoonosis in the sense that we're getting COVID from other people rather than from animals, but like the other coronaviruses that infect human beings, it would have jumped from the animal world into ours. So I hope that you've enjoyed the talk and I've been able to explain where the fourth booster may be useful and not so useful, uh, how we deal with the Omicron boosters that are coming, coming around, BA1 versus the BA4-5 booster, just some data on long COVID and looking at the vaccine landscape in general around the world. And finally, just a, a quick update on some of the other problems not related to COVID in the infectious diseases world. Thank you. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcasts where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.